And it's Friday. Good morning. Welcome to Humor, Grace, and Grief with Deb and Jill. And today we have huge, we are hugely happy to introduce Helen and Jerry, and they are from the Heart of Hospice, which is a fabulous program. Um, and they're going to be able to take all questions and talk about all things hospice with you. Um, Deb, do you, do you want to say hi? And I, I'm saying hello, and I'm also saying my heart is heavy with the people in uh, my Florida. It's Florida. I think it's north of Miami, right near Miami. And my heart is heavy for everyone involved, the people who are not hearing from their loved ones, friends, family, or whatever, and the people that have to do the search and rescue and operate machinery, and it's a gruesome sight, and I, my heart just goes out to all. That's, I don't even know what else to say. Maybe several other people are feeling it. And thoughts, I don't mean this in a, in a cavalier way, but my thoughts and prayers are truly with all involved in the rescue. Absolutely. And with the people at the Family Service Station who are having to ask the questions about what people were wearing and identifying marks and doing DNA, because that never makes anyone feel good and it certainly brings the reality home. So as a former Floridian, my heart's out there with you guys. You've There's a lot going on there and first responders, last responders, all of you. And medical right. teams who are standing by hoping that someone's gonna show up and then right. not having someone show up. That's right. even worse. Uh, not <sighs> the best way, yet this is part of life. And I don't have to like it. I just need to be with it. So be present. Yep. So on that note, let's switch gears and let's talk about Heart of Hospice. And let's talk about hospice because it's it's a big issue. I made two referrals and I'm a therapist to hospice this week um, because people were not getting referred by doctors in time. And folks were being left in hospitals who wanted to go home. And so I searched out who should go and called the family and said, talk to your doctor and see if they can do it. But let's talk about how we make hospice better and make end of life better. Because we had Deb Price on here and she talked about all the things about how to do the papers and how to do the things. And last weekend I was with a friend, family, helping them navigate some things with hospice and doing death education. That's no other way because I'm a nurse and I've worked in hospice and long-term care. And uh, they had lots of questions, no matter how how good a hospice nurse explains things, there's still certain realities and hopes. So if you, um, Helen and Jerry, if it, maybe you could just talk a little bit more about explaining the role of hospice and sort of the myths, the myth and the legend, the myths that happen with hospice. Well, there's a, a lot of myths out there. Uh, first of all, just to introduce us to, to your listeners, uh, I'm Jerry Fenter. I actually worked as a spiritual counselor within a hospice team. And uh, 
I'll let Helen introduce herself. I'm Helen Bauer. I'm a hospice and palliative care certified nurse. And together, Jerry and I are the co-host team for the Heart of Hospice podcast. Um, between us, we have about 20 years of hospice and end-of-life experience. Um, and those hospice myths get us every time. That's on my list of pet peeves. <laughs> um, but I think you're, you're so right. Education is the biggest thing. And I think not just education of the public, but education of people who work in healthcare. We're so siloed. When I worked in home health, I didn't know anything about helping a patient get a referral to hospice. So I think those hospice myths and that education, that is the key. That is crucial. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's why we started the Heart of Hospice podcast is because we knew that there was so little information out there about hospice and so much misinformation about hospice that we wanted to add our voices to the, <laughs> the, uh, the lack of of voices rather that were out there we wanted to add our voice and, and try to dispel some of those myths and to help people understand uh, one of our favorite people in hospice is Barbara Carnes and her favorite saying is knowledge reduces fear so the more the more that you know and understand the less anxiety the less fear there is and so that's been kind of our mantra is we want to educate people about hospice. We want to dispel those myths and help them to have the knowledge that they need. Because, as we also uh, like to say, that a better consumer creates a better hospice team and a better experience for the patient as well. I have a question. If we had to, you know how David Letterman used to do his top 10 list, can you name... I'll phrase it both ways, top three myths in hospice, or let's say your top three hospice myth pet, pet peeves. <laughs> we'll go, I'll go either way. You know, what really goes, oh my God, why do they think this way? Or in general, top three, what's your top three? Top three, that means we have to pick. Um, but we it's a list, so I know how much you like I, I do like that. Um, so I would say, okay, so let's do three, two, one, the way David Letterman does. So the third one is that um, hospice is expensive. Hospice is expensive. That is a total myth. Medicare and most insurances that cover hospice, Medicare covers it um, at no cost to the patient and the family. Um, in some cases, there is a small copay, but I've never seen an agency actually charge that. So medications, equipment, all the, the team that come out to see you, all the, that is covered. It is not expensive for that patient or that family. So that, that's that a good one. I like that. I yeah. posted I like that. that. Good. Thank you. Okay. You get number two. I get number two. I think I have number one already in my head. Okay, so I'll do number two. Go ahead and do number I'll do two. the number two. Okay, um, morphine. Right. Oh, thank you. We uh, hospice nurses and teams are out to just accelerate the patient's death and see them over that threshold and speed things along. And of course, that is absolutely not true. Hospice never seeks to 
prolong anything or accelerate anything. We find the patient where they are, we treat their symptoms, we help them with quality of life, but we never accelerate death. That's never our goal, ever. Good one. So, that's, a, that's a big concern about yes. others, you know. Um, well, I'll let him take this until he needs the liquid morphine or, oh my God, what if I give too much morphine? You can never sure. give enough because you don't realize how under medicated hospice patients are, right? And Am I right? It's a comfort drug. It's not a speeded up drug. Right. It's, they no, say, well, it'll depress his breath, mm -mm. you know, and I'm like, yeah, he'll be deep breathing more deeper once he's more comfortable and you won't have the, <gasps> so I'm just saying. Yeah. Right, and right. you're number one and you're number one. Or did I use it already? No, you didn't. Yeah. Okay, to, me, to me, the number one is that uh, a person's only ready for hospice when their death is imminent. They're, when they're very close to death, no, no. no. Uh, so a person can qualify for hospice when they have a prognosis of six months or less to live. So they have a terminal illness, they have a prognosis of six months or less, which gives the, the team, uh, the hospice team, plenty of time to work with them to improve their quality of life, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, and to, to help them. But if a patient comes on with 24 hours to live, we have very little opportunity to help them to improve their quality of life. And the truth of the matter is, uh, even though the prognosis of six months or less, there are a lot of patients who live much longer than six months. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a, a friend who's a, a hospice medical director, and she tells us that you know prognosis is uh, is an art; it's not a science. Uh, so it can be very difficult at times to say, okay. You know, it, it, six months, five months, four months, who, who knows? Uh, but, but there's no reason to wait until the patient is near death to put them on hospice. And if they go longer than six months, as long as they still qualify under medical criteria, they can stay on hospice. You don't, we don't throw them off unless right. things have dramatically changed. Right. right. And, and if things have dramatically changed and you no longer qualify for hospice, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a win-win. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're still there to pick it up if they if things change again. Exactly. Right? Right. Right. So um, I don't know about you. There was a little bit of static and garbledness for me. Not for you guys. Good. Not for me. So what I want to ask is, uh, so now that we've named your top three, what are some other myths? that education can help dispel? There's a lot of them. No. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna rat out your discipline. I was gonna ask for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big, probably see the smoke come out of Jerry's ears if we say, if we talk about this. But hospice chaplains have a terrible reputation for the, the 
perception that they're going to convert or save or proselytize or sorry. Right? Yes. Exactly. I'm like, what? Yes, yes. Well, the so it's more not a reputation necessarily as much as it is a stereotype. There is this stereotype uh, when you mention chaplain, people are like, um, no, no, I, I don't, I don't want a chaplain, and they have that right to uh, to decline having spiritual care. And we understand that that's okay. Sure. But we hate for them to decline spiritual care because of a uh, misunderstanding about what our role is. And as you can tell, I can get very passionate about this. I lead a team of. Of chaplains, we have about fifty chaplains or so on our in our team in our system, and that's one of the first things that I teach these people is teach our chaplains is you're not there to try to convert proselytize. No, that's that's not what we're there. We're there to help this patient, this family, with whatever their belief system is to help them find the comfort they need using the belief system that they have. Whether they're atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, doesn't make any difference. You're there to be part of the support system. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So that means engendering hope, regardless of what their faith system is. You know, people, people would say an agnostic or an atheist doesn't have those, those components as part of their spiritual lives. That is not true. They believe in hope, they have faith in things, they have love, they have full lives. And it really is the responsibility of everybody on the interdisciplinary team for a hospice agency to promote that quality of life, that that spiritual well-being, but of course, especially for the, the chaplains. So that you did pretty well. You didn't get mad about that. That's good. You didn't see any smoke. I, I would no smoke. It might have been my camera, who knows? <laughs> you know, I I really have to say thank you for saying that, Jerry, because as one time a chaplain came up to me in the hospital and said, so where is your faith? And I said, well, right now I grew up Jewish. I've been to Catholic church and I eat the food from the Hare Krishnas, so you pick. <laughs> and uh, I said, so, I mean, that's where I am right now. So go ahead, say something. And, you know, I, a lot of people think chaplain only means Christian and it will interfere with their view of Christianity or, uh, uh, Anything else. or Judaism or Wiccan or you know, pagan, it doesn't matter. All faiths right. have methods of hope and loss. And thank you for saying that. And uh, now that you told me your weakness, I will be sure to use it in another broadcast. <laughs> but, <laughs> but so, Bill, do you have some questions? I, I could just go yeah, on I and wanted, on. I wanted to just say, uh, <laughs> Look who's here. I'm glad it wasn't mine this time. Sorry. <laughs> We're all dog people here and cat people. Yes. And most of our listeners. Um, when that, was my, very, that was a very big dog. Yes. yes. Sorry about that. 
I think it's great. When my first wife was dying, she refused chaplain. I was like, no, 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 you want the chaplain. You definitely, nope, 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 don't want it. And I said, why don't you just talk to her? Just sit. So she made a deal that they would do book club together. And so the chaplain would come out with a book and they would read a chapter together and talk about it. And I think about four or five weeks in, probably some spiritual stuff came in, but that was when I was not present. But that chaplain flexed and bent all over the place just to be able to be there, to be part of a team, to do the support. And that's my experience with most chaplains. They do amazing work, but they do get a really bad rep. They really do. There's so much so much more that a chaplain can offer uh, than just come in and, and, and do what I call a pat and a prayer. Uh, you know, pat their hand and pray with them. It's so much more than that. There's so much more that, that can can be done by a chaplain. Uh-huh. Like it. What about the myths about hospice medical care and hospice nursing, Helen? Oh, Other than morphine. Oh. Morphine is probably the number one. It's the one, yeah. But but there's also a lot of, um, you know, the nurse is going to take over, and you have no autonomy. You don't get to make your own decisions anymore. We're going to take away all of your medications, um, and none of that's true. None of that is true. We are called. Part of our role is to empower patients. Um, Education, like we were talking before, education is so important. We want patients to know their choices. How do you want to handle this? Here are your options. Here are the consequences and the benefits, benefits and burdens of all these different treatments. Um, So I really think that um, people have a tendency. Nurses can be a little bossy, okay? Um, No. I will cop to that. <laughs> yes, yes, okay. We have kindred spirits there. They're it's also the worst patients. <laughs> yes, that is true. Uh, what I will say is we're not bossy. We just know what you should be doing. <laughs> um, so I, I think people have a perception, you know, uh, a mistaken perception that we're going to come in and take charge. charge. And one of the reasons that's so important is it's always good to remember that hospice never takes the place of family. Right. That's, that's not our role. Right. We don't want to do that. We can't be responsible for your care like that. We don't have the margin. We don't have the space and the resources. And we're there for a season. These families, these patients have lived lives without us for years before that diagnosis made our presence in their home um, a necessity. You know, one of the main things, different hospice groups that I'm on from Facebook, one of the main things I see other nurses doing on there in a good way is call your hospice nurse because they, you know, but many times it's the middle of the night. You know what? You can still call and leave a message. You can text or email. You can reach Uh, the on-call nurse. You reach the on-call nurse, ask the questions. And many times they don't want to bother another. And you probably see this all the time. And the other thing I bet you see, and you can talk a little bit about it, is uh, people who are in the medical profession get and their loved one is dying, whether it's a spouse, partner, uh, 
any family member, a mother or father, whatever, they get caught in between like, oh, I should know this. No, you're the daughter. You don't know this. Let us take that burden right now. But no, 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 I should know better. I should be giving the meds every four hours. You hear what I'm saying? Can you address that a little bit? Or one, people don't want to call. Who should they call? Every agency is different. But who should they call? And how do you separate yourself out like, I should know versus let us take care of that? Well, the calling is an issue. People always assume, um, you know, the hospice team is out there, but I don't want to bother them. Or if this is a stupid question, or I think I've asked this before, but I don't remember the answer. And when you think about the overwhelming circumstances of being a caregiver, and then you pile on grief and fatigue and maybe your own physical issues and family dynamics and how acute the patient is and how fast they change. That's just an enormous burden and stack of, of weight for a caregiver to have to carry. Um, but this is what I'll tell you about calling. Always call the way the hospice has told you to do it because most of them have 24 hour numbers. Texting a nurse who's not on call may not be the best way to communicate, but do it the way your agency has it set up and ask your questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. I don't believe that. And also ask your question again. We understand you might not retain everything. We, it, it's like drinking from a fire hose. It's this huge flow of information in a situation that can be really overwhelming and, and patients turn on a dime. So don't be afraid to ask the questions and don't be afraid to ask them again. So when it comes to dual roles, I think that can be really difficult. So I, I've had a personal experience with hospice. Um, I have one now, I have a, a, a member of my almost immediate family that is currently on hospice. And it is difficult to to be a hospice provider or even just a healthcare provider and also have that personal experience. And I have been at the bedside with nurses who want to take blood pressure for a dying loved one. You know, they're actively dying. Those numbers aren't meaningful the way they used to be. And it really detracts from the experience and being present with that person. It pushes the family sideways because you got to get into that arm. Exactly. So what I tell folks um, that are healthcare professionals that um, try to fit themselves into a professional caregiving role when their role there is really as a family member, I tell them, we will be your healthcare team. You're not his nurse. Today, you're his daughter, his wife. That's where he needs you to be. So set the other piece aside and be fully present in this role as his loved one so that you don't look back and say, I missed, I missed out. I, I let these other things crowd in and let the hospice team support you. That's what we're there for anyway. And I just wanna say also from a personal experience that uh, before you put your loved one, or I won't say put, I should say, uh, 
they get relief from being in hospice and they're moving from the hospital experience or home care experience, it just depends. As a healthcare worker, we know how short and understaffed a lot of hospitals or home care agencies are. So you're used to being on top of it. And I was very grateful when those hospice nurses said to me, Deb, you are the daughter now. You are not gonna be, let us take that. And they had to say it a couple times. And do you know, I literally collapsed sobbing when I realized that. And I bet I'm not the only one. I bet there's others that just go through that. So I just wanna address that because just today or the other day I read someone was in the same position, you know. What other kinds of things would you want us to know about hospice? And I'll use like a myth because people still have ideas. What's some other myths that people have? What about having social workers? Yeah. Oh yeah, the bossy ones. Oh yeah. And they they want to know all your personal business. And they're only there to do paperwork. Exactly. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. They want to know all about your money, how much money you have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's definitely one of the, the myths that is out there because, um, you know, the social workers start asking these really deep personal questions and, you know, do you have uh, any advanced care documents and um, what about, what about your finances? You know, we can get you some resources. If, but we need to know about your finances before we can do that. And people are really hesitant about that. And they think that, well, if, if I tell you, you're going to tell the government what, what, my, what mm -hmm. my finances are. And I don't want the government knowing what my finances are. Right. And it's a struggle sometimes to, to get people to understand, no, that's, that's not what we're doing this for. Uh, we're here to provide resources that you qualify for, but we need to make sure that you qualify for them before we can do that. So really, the whole team at times has some uh, some misunderstandings about what we do and what our role is. We, I was on a hospice board last night with people who have loved ones on hospice, and someone started a comment, and it turned into a hullabaloo with, how dare they ask about funeral plans? Are they trying to speed up my loved one's death? And I just wanted to cringe. Because yeah, that's that, not why people are asking for that. Right. No, no. It, the whole idea is to help you find any resources and to just facilitate those decisions. We never try to speed anything up, but we want to help you make those decisions. And because like the social workers and the chaplains are typically the folks who help with um, <coughs> the whole idea is we, we do this every day numerous times a day this is our experience and our skill set so we bring this to you so that we can help you make those decisions and make those plans it's just it's all about making it a little bit easier is what it comes down to what about the use of um, humor to join with families even in tough moments can you talk a little bit about that because I know our teams tended to have wicked senses of humor in the back, but we also brought it in, not the wicked part, of course, into our families because it sure did lighten the load a little bit and break the ice a little bit or allow them to talk about the tough stuff, no matter who the discipline was. Right. 
we try to do that as a team, of course. We we will, um, like you say, we have that kind of wicked sense of humor that uh, that does, in some ways, um, lighten the load a little bit. I mean, there needs to be some comic relief occasionally. I think it's a little dark sometimes for us, at Probably. least, you know, as far as between team. Oh, yes. 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 Yeah. You have to have gallows humor to relieve your own anxiety. And that's the purpose of gallows humor. Exactly. But that's not the kind of humor we take to our families. Mm -mm. Right. No, no. I know with nursing, you know, there's, there's some of the things that we help families do that are really unpalatable. And, you know, bodily functions, bodily fluids, loss of modesty and um, catheters. Yes, all of those things, the, the artificial things. Um, and so I think sometimes we use humor to, to lighten, you know, this doesn't have to, you don't have to carry it so heavily. Um, it's okay to do this every day. It's okay to laugh at it a little bit. Sometimes it's just funny. Our nurses used people. to borrow the, the bubble pack wrap that came in with equipment and they put it in their cars. And if they were going into a family that was having a tough time, they'd bring enough for everybody to have a piece so that they could have bubble wrap contests, right? Yeah, because there's just something wonderful about that, right? That's good, I like that. Right? I like that, I like that. Um, when I went to say goodbye to my friend uh, the other day, and that may that may be the last time I see him because I was helping the family with some stuff and saying my goodbyes. I uh, noticed he was watching, and I'm gonna word this carefully, a news show and I said wow good thing you're watching that because if you would watch the other news show it would kill you and he was able to she's going like no yes because I knew that person's sense of humor as as a person who goes into a lot of these things or as a minister who plans funerals I actually uh, evaluate their sense of humor uh, quite often so I know where to go with it. Some people, they do not have a fluid sense of humor. So it's this, 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 this. And you sure. know when that is. Yeah. Others, yeah. I have a, before we close up and ask you all about heart of the Heart of Hospice program, can you talk a little bit about the calling that employees of hospices have, as opposed to being staff who just happen to get a job at hospice? Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Good one, Jill. You want to take that? I like that. Like uh, that. I can tell you my own story, and that I think will give you a little bit of a, uh, an indication of what it's like. I've been in ministry as a pastor for over 30 years and uh, decided to make a change. Wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I decided I needed to make a change. <laughs> and so um, left where I uh, left the church where I was working and began the search for what career choice was next for me. And I had a friend who told me, uh, she said, you would make a great hospice chaplain. And I was like, I will never do that. <laughs> Uh, famous last words. <laughs> famous Definitely. last words. Uh, two weeks later, I saw uh, an ad for a hospice chaplain in, in our area. It's like, 
okay, here we go. <laughs> and so I applied. Lo and behold, I, I, I got the job. And it wasn't long into this work that I realized this was my calling. This was such a perfect fit for me, for my personality, for my background, for my experience. Unlike the ministry that I had been used to, this was more the boots on the ground, uh, you know, rubber meets the road kind of, of work. And I loved every second of it. Um, and I think for most people who work in hospice, not just chaplains, but for most people who work in hospice, it becomes a calling. Now there are going to be, there are those who, who come in, you know, thinking that, okay, I, I needed a job they don't typically last very long because they realize pretty quick, uh, this is not for me. And it's very different from hospital work where you know the, the purpose in hospital work is to cure someone, make them well, and, uh, and, and hope that they're going to get better. Hospice work, our, our work is not about curing people. It's about helping people in that end of life to find comfort, to find quality, uh, and to to have a, a good end of life experience. And so it really does take a, a calling to to fit into this role. And so that that's my story and, and what I have seen in the the eleven years that I've been working in hospice. Huh? Well, I actually was one of those people that said I need a full time job, <laughs> but when I stumbled into it, my first day out in the field my first visit that was a ride-along, the patient died while we were there. And it was the most intense, profound experience. And what I saw from the team made me so drawn to the work. And so I, I got 10 years in, almost 11, and now I know this is where I'll finish out my career. Um, I myself grow, not just you know professionally in my nursing skills, nursing experience, but also working with these skilled psychosocial clinicians and spiritual clinicians felt myself grow mentally and emotionally and spiritually um, you know being influenced not just by my patient experiences in contact but my interactions with my colleagues and my co-workers it's just this incredibly rich experience to be able to work inside hospice and such incredibly talented and skilled people that hospice teams have to be able to work independently and think on their feet and manage stuff and reach out to the right team member if there's something going on. And they, they need to, they're the people who feel a need to be present when someone is making that transition. And not many people can do that. I've, I've learned so much from the hospice nurses I've worked for. Some terrible jokes too, but a lot of really fabulous skills. And yes, I was a social worker, but I'm perfectly capable of holding you know, whatever they need held while they're doing all the things and I'm closing my eyes. So, right. There you go. Right. Yeah. Hospice nurses are, are, we have a pretty gross sense of humor, I guess. Yes. And the chaplains have just been, you know, I've watched them take people who are just so angry and to be able to work through that, you know, in, in a clinical way, I could do that, but they, that person needed it worked through on a spiritual basis. And they were able to guide them through. So when they got to the end, they were able to, to be done and to say goodbye. It's it's an, an incredible level of skill that anybody who's got someone who's dying really 
deserves and needs to have. Yeah. Tell us about your program because we're going to put you up and I'm going to put it in. You got to get down, Fred. <laughs> Tell us about heart, the Heart of Hospice. Well, the Heart of Hospice uh, podcast has been going now for uh, almost five years. We will have a, a five-year anniversary coming up uh, in August. And we had a, a mission of, again, just educating about hospice. Because we were tired of hearing people say, oh, I wish I had known about this sooner. And so our goal was to try to get the information out there in a way that people can, can use it. We also realized that hospice professionals need encouragement. Uh, encouragement to practice good self-care. Uh, encouragement to, to do better, uh, to practice better, uh, and to, to have some practical ways of improving the care that they give to patients. And so our podcast is really all about uh, improving in, in many, many ways, improving the knowledge base that people have when it comes to hospice, improving the, the skill set of the hospice team, the professionals who make up that team. So we try to, to cover a lot of territory uh, when it comes to that. Uh, I'll have to say, when we first got started, we both uh, said, is there enough to talk about that we can do this long term? <laughs> and, and of course, we, we found out pretty quickly Oh, there's a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to hospice. And we realized, too, we, in fact, just yesterday we were talking to somebody who said, you know, having someone that you love being put on hospice is like having this little dinghy thrown out into the middle of the ocean, and you're sitting in this, and you don't know which way to go, you don't know which way to turn, you need somebody who can help you navigate. And we sort of feel like that's who we are. Yeah. We want to be that navigator to to help them find their way and to understand all the nuances about this. Because there is a lot of a lot of little things that about hospice most people don't understand. Yeah. It's confusing at times, definitely. So you want to tell you want to tell them Yeah, how do we reach you? Where and, and what, what we do and well you can podcast. you can find the podcast on any platform that you would uh, find a podcast on Spotify Apple podcast um, iHeartRadio, Google Play you can also find us on our website theheartofhospice.com um, we have a listen page that uh, you can navigate to that will give you all of our podcasts um, all five years worth um, so you can find all of those archived there, and you can search by subject. Um, we have a blog there um, on our read page. There's information about hospice philosophy. Um, they can subscribe, and they'll get emails when we post new content, when there's a new podcast episode that comes out. So, um, we network with a lot of colleagues, a lot of professionals in the industry. So um, you'll find interviews with them and resources there for caregivers, whether you're a professional caregiver or a personal caregiver. So uh, theheartofhospice.com. And if people have questions for us and want to reach out to us individually, they can reach us at host at theheartofhospice.com. Just shoot us an email. We have uh, episodes that publish um, every week on Friday. There's a new one that just came out this morning. 
so those come out uh, once a week on Friday. And then we also have what we call full-length uh, interviews uh, every first uh, and fifteenth. We publish a new a new episode, uh, and and so we've got those that we we publish that are longer. We interview some of the uh, the icons in the hospice industry and uh, these subject matter experts, as well as people that are that uh, have a connection to the things that people in hospice might be interested in, uh, books that, that are coming out, the new resources that are coming out. And so we're, we're always letting people know about the new resources that we, we find through the, the podcast episodes. I'm getting that in there. Great. Thank yeah. you for being here. I, I was so glad you agreed to come. I, I was on their podcast a while back and I, we connected like heart to heart and I am just so glad that we are connected professionally and I'm glad now that we'll be able to put this for our folks um, and it'll be up on our page today and we will share it out loud for everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you spending Friday you with us. Same That's here. I will see you on social media. You can find the Heart of Hospice on social media and you can, I would encourage you to go to their website. Um, the blogs are incredible. The resources I use, um, and I do grief for living folks and I refer people to hospice for living. I go to that page for resources um, and have it listed on my resource page. So please take advantage of that. Um, our hospice people who are watching, please make sure you check it out. You will not be sorry. You will find lots there that I know you know you know, but you don't know when you need to know. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Thanks everybody. So much, Have you. a good Friday, everybody. Deb, I will see you next week. You will. All oh, right. You'll we'll talk. We'll, we'll talk. talk. Maybe it'll just be me next week. Yeah. Yes, strap your seatbelts. It should be fun. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye.